Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Victoria is looking at a, a long road to so-called COVID normal with regional Victoria following a different set of road rules to Melbourne. Border communities are also interacting with border closures, adding a whole other layer of complexity. Helen Haynes is the, um, the independent member for the regional seat of Indi. She's worked as a nurse, health administrator and researcher before entering parliament and this morning's going to speak to us about a range of issues. The Federal Integrity Commission noticed for a bill that she put forth in Canberra last week as well as the border bubble and welcome back to Triple R, Helen. Thanks very much, Kalia. Thanks, Dylan, and hello to all your listeners. And if we can start with the COVID recovery, what is the status of the border bubble this morning? Ah, uh, gosh. Kalia, uh, the introduction is is quite accurate. It is, um, it's an additional layer of complexity that uh, people living across the Victorian New South Wales border face. And, of course, I represent northeast Victoria, which includes uh, Albury-Wodonga area. Um, just, uh, just over a week ago, the Premier of New South Wales uh, finally gave us some leeway on the restrictions on the border, which means that uh, people roughly within 50 k's of the border, not exactly 50 k's, there's some uh, postcode inclusions there, uh, can move, move across the border for their everyday life. Uh, that, that did ease restrictions a little bit in terms of who can move across the border. Um, However, on top of that, uh, of course, being Victorians, uh, we're subject to the restrictions that are imposed on regional Victoria, which at the moment is uh, stage three. And of course, with uh, Premier Andrew's announcement yesterday, we'll ease a little bit uh, next next Sunday. Uh, so that, that means people with, uh, with school children, for example, who live on the Wodonga side of the border have uh, different regulations to the school children on the other side um, who have uh, the same school as, uh, that people visiting each other, if you live in Wodonga, you'll have different visitation rules than people who live just uh, a minute or so across the border on the other side. So it, it is um, a very complex situation here. And we've heard from some people living in regional communities that there is a level of, uh, I guess you could say, dissatisfaction around the nature of restrictions they've been um, uh, compelled to live with, given there haven't been as many COVID-19 cases in some of those communities as there have been in the major cities. How have your constituents dealt with the experience over the past few months, I guess, with those issues around uh, border communities and the border bubble, but also with adapting to the kind of shifting ground of restrictions that we've, we've been living with? Dylan, I think, um, fir firstly, it was essentially the, the border closure created a level of complexity that, uh, that really was extremely, is extremely difficult for people living on the borders. That, on top of general restrictions, it, it really was the border closure that added another dimension, and many people in business, in fact, have told me that for them... Uh, Bushfires, COVID-1 lockdown, COVID-2 lockdown, uh, 
were not as bad as the border closure in terms of the impact on their on the local economy. So there's that. I, I think what what this highlights when you're on a border community and you live in the regions and there's been no active cases, no community spread for months now. Uh, it becomes a very difficult. Uh, a very difficult scenario to comprehend uh, when when just across just across what is essentially an artificial barrier at the border uh, life goes on um, in a more uh, normal and regular way on the New South Wales side um, but the Essentially, the same community just on the other side of the border is under um, pretty tough restrictions. So uh, many people, of course, are asking the question, are we going to, going forward into the next year or more, when we are still waiting for a vaccine, are we going to have the same kind of guidelines for people living in communities where there is no uh, virus spread as in communities where there is, where there is spread and I, I think it's a reasonable question to ask. I think many people up here were very disappointed um, that restrictions weren't eased more for the communities outside of Melbourne where there is no COVID and many people have said to me uh, we are not Ballarat or Geelong um, or Bendigo where there is some spread so uh, people are asking the question but up until uh, really people have been extremely compliant law abiding and doing the right thing but the question is raised now. Yeah, and I, I think that's also the case in Melbourne that people are, you know, mostly patient and and trying to be understanding. But it is a really confusing time, and which is really interesting. Then, Helen, that when you're in Canberra last week, which I'd love to hear more about um, uh, Canberra in COVID times as well. But if we can speak about the notice for the Australian Federal Integrity Commission bill and the other bill that you put um, notice of a bill that you put forward in Canberra, why is it that you want to put integrity back on the national agenda at this time? Talia, I've, I've never taken integrity off the agenda, to be truthful. Um, throughout the 2019 campaign, it was very clear to me across my electorate that everyday people are concerned about trust and decency in their federal, federal politics. Uh, the government went into the the 2019 campaign with a promise that they would introduce an Integrity Commission bill when Parliament resumed. That was 21 months ago, and we still haven't seen that bill. And we know that uh, our federal government have been calling upon us as a nation to trust them. And uh, at the same time, the most recent Australia Institute polling indicated that three in four Australians want a federal integrity mission and that trust in politics remains uh, lower than it should be. So um, I've been waiting patiently, as have many other members of the parliament, especially the crossbench, and there is still no bill forthcoming from the government. So uh, I've been throughout that time working closely with the National Integrity Commission, uh, Committee of judges, retired judges. Uh, I've been working closely with uh, uh, AJ Brown, of the uh, of Griffith University and uh, and working with uh, with my colleagues really to look at the reintroduction of new bills on a federal integrity commission. So I have tabled my intention to do so. A bill called the Australian Federal Integrity Commission 2020 and the Commonwealth Parliamentary Standards Bill 2020. 
it's the second bill, actually, that uh, I think is, is just as important as the first, and that is to put in a set of standards that parliamentarians need to adhere to, and that gives us a good good benchmark, really, about what kind of behaviour is not acceptable, what kind of behaviour needs to be um, investigated. And I think what we've seen uh, throughout the year is, uh, is is not a reduction in scandals, but the same old stories as usual. Sports yep. still not dealt with, for example, um, branch stacking in Victoria on both sides um, of uh, politics. I think we need something better and I'm prepared to do the work to, to help make that happen. Yeah, you don't need to go back very far for some of those examples at all, really. And, I mean, in terms of the Integrity Commission, um, Attorney General Christian Porter has said that there was an intention to put that before Parliament at the start of the year, but it got derailed by the pandemic. But, of course, over the past few months, we've seen the COVID Commission instituted, which has been, I think, for the general public, quite opaque about exactly what its remit is and, and how it's operating. And I know there's questions that have been asked around potential conflicts of interest of, of some of those people who sit on that commission as well. What, I guess, is the um, is there a specific need for ensuring integrity is maintained and that there's suitable accountability, I suppose, right at the moment when there are such significant decisions being made about the nation's future? Dylan, I think you've just made the case perfectly for why we do need such a body as the Integrity Commission. I think we've always needed one, um, but we need one more than ever. Uh, you're quite right. Um, the level of scrutiny that we would normally have in Parliament has been reduced substantially during the pandemic. The Parliament hasn't sat as regularly as it would be. Uh, there was a, 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 a COVID committee stood up, as you just indicated, it, and it's still there advising government. Now, we don't know um, what happens in that in that committee. We, we, we don't see what's going on and we don't know how much influence um, that group is having with, with government. Even as a parliamentarian, I don't know that. Uh, and there is no means at the moment and, uh, to deal with issues as they come through that, that may in fact be systemic corruption. So uh, every state and territory across the nation has a, an integrity commission of some type uh, to oversee their their state parliaments. Um, we need the same thing at a, at a federal level, of course we do. Uh, I think while the attorney has been... Um has, has said that the pandemic has uh, taken over in terms of, of uh, legislative agenda uh, and has delayed the introduction of uh, his Federal Integrity Commission bill. Uh, the, I, think that, uh, I think that really doesn't hold, to be truthful. Um, prior to Christmas, the, the attorney did uh, have a substantial amount of work done uh, with an integrity. I've met with him a couple of times and he said so. Uh, the government have been able to introduce several other pieces of uh, legislation. Uh, just, just last week, um, rushed through the House was the Streamlining Environmental Approvals Bill. Um, rushed through the House were uh, several bills... Uh, relating to immigration. Uh, I think that uh, it really doesn't hold to say that we can't continue with other legislation um, while we're dealing with the pandemic, in my opinion. Helen Haynes is with us. She's the independent member for the regional Victorian seat of Indi. And you mentioned earlier there, Helen, that you're working with your colleagues uh, on uh, these proposed bills. Does this include the opposition or is it mostly the, the crossbench that you've been working with across the parliament? So, Carly, what I've been doing, um, back in February, I um, 
just introduced uh, a set of principles which I spoke to in the Parliament uh, called the Beechworth Principles, um, five principles that should underpin any Federal Integrity Commission bill that we saw. And I introduced those as a method by which I would look through a lens to examine uh, the government's bill when it when it was finally tabled. And of course, it has not been. Um, five key things, broad jurisdiction broad jurisdiction, common rules, appropriate powers, um, uh, fair hearings and accountability to the people. Uh, so I've been talking about this for a very long time and I've taken those five principles and uh, spoken to many parliamentarians uh, across the aisle. So um, the, the ALP broadly support those five principles. Many members of the Parliament agree that they are important um, principles by which any Integrity Commission bill should be uh, should be assessed. Uh, so it's upon those principles that I've looked at the previous bills that have been introduced. Uh, my predecessor, Cathy McGowan, introduced Federal Integrity Commission bill. Uh, the Greens have introduced a Federal Integrity Commission bill. Uh, though both those bills uh, have not been... Uh, have not been uh, accepted through Parliament. Uh, in fact, when we last spoke about an Integrity Commission bill in the Parliament, uh, those of us who wished to talk about it were, were gagged in debate. So, um, yes, I've been working with multiple MPs to, to find out from them what is it in the current suite of bills that we've already seen from, from Cathy McGowan and from the Greens. What is it that you don't like? What is it that you do like? And uh, for many MPs... Uh, their greatest concern is around um, public hearings. And uh, so I've talked with them a lot about that, how we can get the, get that right so that MPs feel that it would be a fair hearing and that uh, that we wouldn't be seeing star chambers or vexatious referrals, for example. I'm really interested in the role of independence uh, currently, uh, Helen, because we've seen recently Zali Stegall put up a, a climate change bill, for example, and we've often seen you almost um, sort of speak out collectively as a group, for example. Yourself, um, Zali, and Rebecca Sharkey spoke out against the recent environmental law changes being uh, ran through Parliament and so on. Do you often sort of catch up as a group to see how some of your shared concerns can be advanced perhaps more robustly or effectively if you band together? Yes, so um, as, as members of the crossbench, of course, we all have varying priorities according to our electorates and our, our key, key priority areas. But when it comes to integrity, we are very much of one voice on this. Uh, so, yes, we do catch up about that. Um, of course, we, we also, um, by the nature of, of how Parliament works, uh, we catch up regularly around private members' business, whereby we, we need to negotiate take it in terms, uh, in, in terms of who's putting forward motions and private members' bills questions, for example, we need to share across the, uh, across the crossbench. So um, by the nature of, of parliamentary business, we quickly catch up. But certainly when it comes to integrity, we are very united on this, and you'll see this crossbench step out uh, regularly to talk about integrity. Um, usually also uh, Andrew Wilkie, uh, Adam Bant, Bob Catter often, um, and members of the Senate crossbench too. I think that we are all very strong in wanting to see this uh, this work finally happen for our federal parliament. I'd love to see, um, you know, I, I don't particularly want to have competing bills on this. I want to see a good bill. I want to see one that will um, finally... Uh, 
put this issue to bed and we can get on with the business of policy and stop talking about scandal in Parliament, to be truthful. Yeah, that's a fair point. And um, while we're talking a little bit about the mechanics behind the scenes, how did the uh, visual, the sort of the virtual aspect of Parliament go last week? And I'm assuming that the next sort of four sitting weeks that we see before the end of the year, um, that um, service is likely to be there again, I imagine. Carly, I think it worked really well. I think um, it, it went very smoothly in the House. So members who were unable to attend physically were able to uh, engage in debate, give their speeches. Um, we had uh, one one slight uh, interjection during question time virtually, which was um, uh, a, a bit amusing, actually, coming from the coming from the screens behind the scenes um, when you have the speaker having to chastise someone who's not actually physically there. Um, but of course, the limitations of a virtual uh, engagement with Parliament is that those members cannot vote. Uh, so uh, that does limit very much uh, the degree to which they can fully participate as a member of Parliament. Well, thank you so much for being with us again on Triple R, Helen. And uh, yeah, all of us are looking for more certainty around um, the, the roadmap out of this um, mm. current uh, lockdown period and um, very much so those border communities. So um, all the best in the, in the coming days and weeks. Thank you, Carly and Dylan, and all, the, and all the best to you. Stage four lockdowns continued. Um, really difficult. My, my three kids all live in Melbourne, um, but what I've seen is so much uh, goodwill and cooperation and hard work from Melburnians, and um, I really wish you all the very, very best. Yeah, we're yeah. doing our best. Cheerio. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. In amongst the pandemic news, you might have picked up that Google and Facebook have been flexing their muscles. And this is following draft Australian government legislation being released, which, if passed into law, would compel the American tech giants to negotiate payment for content with Australian media companies. Anna Draffin is CEO of the Public Interest Journalism Initiative, and it's really great to have you on Triple R. Anna, welcome. Good morning. Thanks, Talia. And so it looks like we're at a new beginning when it comes to the fight for fair payment. Where are we at with regards to uh, compelling uh, companies to pay a fair price for content? So the ACCC announced in April its intention to move towards a mandatory code between the news media organisations and the digital platforms. As a result, it put out to consultation through May-June a concepts paper, which has now moved forward to a draft exposure for Bill and Legislation to nominate the terms under which that code would operate. And the ACCC is now reviewing the industry submissions um, to its proposed bill, which has four major areas. So it's looking at collective bargaining, arbitration process, minimum standards and non-discrimination provisions. 
And I, I guess one of the, the major focuses has been this sort of mandatory draft code that's been proposed as a result of the voluntary negotiations not really moving along as well as the government would have hoped. I'm wondering how you see these negotiations actually sort of evolving, given the very complicated ways in which news content is shared through these digital platforms and also the role of algorithms and, and personal news feeds that can make it very difficult, I imagine, to assess just how far the reach is from these digital platforms sharing particular types of news content? So there's a complexity of interrelated issues and underpinning that is a lack of universal data available to all parties. And one of the issues that the code is trying to address is to bring that uniformity of data uh, to both sides of a negotiation process and to drive some better outcomes. Hopefully that will result in stronger commercial negotiations um, and go some way to addressing that notion of benefit that flows in both directions. So the digital platforms derive benefit from publishing news content as equally the news organisations receive benefit of driving audiences to their news sites. But there's a whole lot of underlying indirect benefit and that's the piece that the code is trying to codify and provide some commercial outcomes in terms of payment to the news organisations for their content that they may not otherwise derive. And it's an interesting area, isn't it, Um Anna, because, I mean, is there an established agreed value for journalism anyway, like that where, where we can start to, to, to see some understanding, um, you know, this sort of journalism is worth this much or this is worth that much? Like, do we have that sort of base level um, benchmark of data? No, and that's one of the one of the under, underlying issues here, Carly, of how do you actually put a value on journalism? And with regard to Pidgey's interests, our focus is, of course, on public interest journalism, which has an inherent public good nature to it, uh, which is always difficult to put an economic price on. Yeah, and that, that's a question I have, actually, because the ACCC's terms do explicitly refer to the importance of public interest journalism for the functioning of democracy. And, I mean, there are legitimate questions, I think it's fair to say, around the democratic benefits of, of some types of journalism as opposed to others. Do you imagine that there will need to be kind of fairly robust arguments made through this process um, about what exactly the value is of types of certain types of journalism compared to others? So one of the upsides of the COVID and the bushfires is that it has brought about broad public recognition of the essential service that news provides and the importance to maintain a diversity of news producers to ensure that sort of democratic function and access to knowledge. Uh, what the code is seeking to do is bring all the parties together and <clears throat> recognise that common obligation and intent to ensure that the general public have access to news at any given time. How we arrive at a 
mutually agreeable position is really the contest at the moment. And uh, I should remind people we're speaking with Anna Draffin. She's with the Public Interest Journalism Initiative and speaking about um, so the, well, the new attempts to share costs or at least get a fair payment for content uh, from Google and Facebook in particular. And, I mean, from what we've heard uh, from Facebook mostly in, in recent days and weeks, Anna, um, do you think media outlets are, are feeling optimistic about these negotiations? I mean, it seems that they're going to play hardball. It does at this stage. One would hope that the ACCC are still deep in consultation with both Google and Facebook and trying to find some mutual ground. But obviously there are some concerns with Facebook's announced intent to withdraw from the market if the code proceeds. And obviously that creates huge concerns around the proliferation of misinformation which may occur. So if you can imagine a Facebook where there is no links or feeds of any Australian news or indeed international news through their news feeds because that's what they'd be um, looking to do is opt out the carriage of credible news sources. So that means there is no counter to opinion that may be placed on Facebook, um, which really creates huge growing concerns, particularly in the run-up to the US election later this year and indeed the Australian federal election within the next 18 to 24 months. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, there's been a lot talked about the sort of big media companies such as Nine and and the Murdoch-owned outlets and so on. How do you see the mandatory code as it currently is devised um, relating to small and medium-sized outlets? Because we know a lot of those have, you know, faced really significant challenges and indeed closed over the past few months as a result of of revenue and advertising revenue really diving uh, as a result of the pandemic. So the code is looking to address the bargaining power between the digital platforms and the news organisations. But as you've quite rightly outlined, there is also a huge discrepancy in Australia between very large news organisations such as Nine and News Corp through to your very local newspaper or community broadcaster. One of the pieces that we've made through are 28 recommendations on the code's draft exposure is to actually provide more support and guidance for the small to medium players and particularly looking to um, provide them with more guidance in terms of access uh, to information or more guidance coming from the ACCC through the negotiating process. Um, And indeed, one of the recommendations we had for the very, very small players is for them to come together in a collective and for ACMA, the industry regulator, to actually appoint an independent third party who would lead a lump sum negotiation on behalf of those very small players. And if they don't um, wish to negotiate Google and Facebook, then what? So the code obliges them if they're participating in the Australian market and using Australian news content... Uh, to negotiate. If not, it goes to arbitration and an arbitration panel who is either nominated by the two participant parties or set by the regulator if there's disagreement will actually arrive at a final outcome. So 
that's the teeth in amongst the code is where negotiating parties can't come together. The code actually forces you into mandatory arbitration with a final offer made by that panel. Mm. And a further complicating factor in Australia is the existence, of course, of, of government-funded media, including the ABC and, and SBS, and they're not included in this code to the extent that they can directly receive funds for their news and journalism. Your submission proposes that they should be included with the funds that coming out of that process put towards a public interest journalism fund. I wonder if you can tell us about what that might entail and, and how you envisage that working. So we see the importance of the code that it should be fully inclusive of all news organisations. Uh, it's worth noting that the ABC and SBS are included for the purposes of minimum standards and the non-discrimination requirements. So we feel that they should also therefore be captured in terms of assessment of their content, particularly as two of the largest producers of public interest journalism in the country. However, where we have gone to in the assessment of any funds that may rise from the use of that content by the digital platforms is that diversion into a public interest journalism fund. That being said, we do acknowledge that SBS has approximately 25% of their annual budget comes from commercial activity, so we would say consumer and amount of money raised from their content should flow to them. But with the remainder going into a public interest journalism fund... That really goes a long way to then addressing the ongoing concerns we have about viability and diversity of news in this country of all types and sizes, where it is of a public interest. So the fund could be open for all media players, eligible media organisations, under the terms of the regulation eligibility um, that would be held from the code. It would give us an opportunity to have an ongoing recurrent fund that could have start-up support for news organisations uh, that are just starting out and not covered by the code. Equally, it could turn into a loan arrangement for news organisations looking to invest into new areas of either community uh, coverage or indeed service. For those, I mean, and it, it is quite confusing, I think, um, for, for you know, people might just care about good journalism and good news being and um, sound news being available to them. Will the actions of the ACCC and all this proposed legislation, if it's successful and and Google and Facebook come to the table and we, and, you know, fair payment is secured for media outlets, will that stem the tide of newsroom closures and all these sorts of things that we're seeing, not just because of the pandemic, but just because the the news business model, you know, broke some years ago. Will this address those issues uh, on its own? So the code alone won't be enough. It's an important step towards recognising the important role that both news organisations and the digital platforms provide in getting news to the general public. It doesn't capture all players. As I said, startup news organisations, for instance, would sit outside the code as it's currently drafted. And we believe that there should be four areas of initiatives coming through. So government policy needs to look at taxation incentives. So we'll be putting out 
within the next fortnight, new work on investment incentives in terms of an R&D-style rebate. We're also looking at levers for philanthropic support, as we've seen coming through, particularly in America, for a lot of news organisations where that can provide critical funding to smaller community-led news organisations. And then, of course, working with the digital platforms outside of the code work. We've seen in recent months some really positive steps towards collaboration between Facebook and Google with news organisations and different programs that they've run in Australia and elsewhere around the world. And we'd be certainly looking to encourage more investment and collaboration. Yeah, and I'm fascinated as well in how you see this evolving in terms of these digital platforms' relationship with other governments around the world. I mean, do you see what's being proposed by the Australian government as in any way similar or quite different to what has been attempted elsewhere? So attempts elsewhere, particularly out of Europe, have focused more on the copyright aspect as distinct from competition, which is the Australian context. What Australia is looking to do is a world precedent. So we know that governments around the world are watching this carefully and to see what eventuates in terms of legislation and how the digital platforms uh, do or don't cooperate within that context. Uh, Within France and Spain, what we saw was market withdrawal, which did have undesirable consequences and we're ideally looking to avoid all of those in Australia because we really value both Facebook and Google's participation, collaboration with the industry and we recognise the need for a news organisation to thrive and survive in the 21st century. You need the digital platform's participation. Well, it sounds like the whole world's watching. Uh, Anna, thanks so much for um, sharing insights with us this morning. Thanks both for your time. Thanks, uh, Anna Juffin. She's over uh, at the Public Interest Journalism Initiative where she's the CEO and speaking there about really the muscle flexing that's happening with Google and Facebook in um, negotiation, really, uh, around how they will participate uh, in discussions around paying a fair price for media content in Australia. Let's see how that pans out. It's going to be a long one, I reckon. Triple... And in many areas, the COVID pandemic has exacerbated issues that were already long-standing: aged care, higher education, youth unemployment. Come to mind. Unfortunately, a new report shows this to be true also of inequality. Um, uh, latest data pulled together by ACOS and the University of New South Wales, as part of the Poverty and Inequality Partnership report, found wealth inequality and the gulf uh, between those at the highest of um, household wealth income and um, and those at the lowest is widening and has been for 15 years. Um, when it comes to the income measure, um, this is, means that the, those that are earning the most are earning six times more than those that are earning the least. And we've invited Cassandra Goldie, Chief Executive of ACOS, to speak more about this this morning. It feels really important, Cassandra, and welcome to Triple R. 
Yeah, good morning. Thank you for having me on. And your um, you report also shows that the wealth divide is 90 times. Um, so those at the, the lowest uh, when we come to wealth measures and the highest, I mean, that is a huge gulf. Do, do we really understand what that means? I mean, 90 times seems it's just a huge number and it's hard to kind of get that in our heads, how it can be that we have such a gulf in Australia. Yeah, look, I think um, the the numbers do matter because it um, helps to confirm that the sort of the debates that are going on in the community, that sense of financial insecurity, for, particularly for you know younger people, for many women, for people whose incomes have been frozen for far too long. That they're talking about it, but our report, which was looking at the data pre-COVID, to be clear, confirms this really significant and growing divide in terms of, in the end, how much people are able to get behind you. And we focus on wealth as well as income because that that sense of, you know, do I have a few thousand dollars or do I have a tens of thousands of dollars or do I have hundreds of thousands of dollars and a home behind me makes a huge difference to people's psychological sense of psychological safety. You know, if something bad happens, we'll be pretty okay. Um, and of course, that sense of security that, if, you know, if you lost your job, would you lose your home? So this um, growth in the wealth inequality, which is we looked at over the 15-year period to show that for people in the top 20% of wealth brackets, there's been an almost 70% increase in wealth accumulation. But if you're in the bottom 20%, it was just 6%, shows that a whole range of policy settings and circumstances have meant that if you had wealth, you're able to grow it and you've been able to grow it fairly well. But if you were in the sort of lower 40% of income brackets and wealth brackets, it became harder and harder. Now, we've all talked about it, right, haven't we? You know, the ability to get a home behind you, um, the debate about superannuation, that's what this report is all about. I wonder also about how that plays into generational inequality going forward. I mean, we know it's become a lot more difficult to buy a house and also as a result of your report, we see that it's disproportionately um, young people and and women who are experiencing uh, kind of the lower end, I guess, or the the receiving end of, of income and wealth inequality. How do you see, I guess, looking over the figures over the past 15 years or so in terms of how we're tracking with that generational divide and the ability for people who are kind of getting into the workforce without necessarily a really wealthy family behind them and home ownership and so on, being able to develop and, and, and build their income and wealth going forward? Yep. So, look, it's, um, I think what's important um, as the takeaway out of this report is if we see over the next period a sort of a ravaging of inequality, you know, again, it will be because we've not fixed underlying policy settings. So, for example, um, income inequality did not improve over the last period because, for example, social security payments, you know, the huge debate over youth allowance and new start hadn't been increased for 25 years in real terms. And of course, you know, we're in a hot debate right now about trying to secure a permanent, really seriously adequate increase for youth allowance and um, job seeker. 
that picture is reflected in these numbers, that for people on low incomes falling further and further behind. Um, and, of course, that also related to what was happening for low-paid work, that we saw this free, effectively freezing of no real growth. Whereas, if you had a lot of wealth behind you during that period, did pretty well in terms of you know investment income. Superannuation is really great for people if you've got a lot in it. You, you, grow, you know, you grow your wealth holding in super really well because it's not taxed, actually, in the so-called retirement phase. It's one of the things we're trying to push to change. Um, and, of course, this debate about home ownership, that for far too long we have relied on securing a big deposit behind you, this notion that somehow the prosperity is built on growing the price of houses when actually if you're a young person that is bad news if house prices keep going up so instead we should be appropriately spending a lot of money investing in low and affordable housing which is suitable for long-term rentals give people a lot of security in that picture Um, and of course if we get something better on the um, investment for people at lowering in terms of incomes and um, social security and help to get jobs, then we might actually also put people in a better position to be able to secure um, that deposit that would be needed for home ownership. So I don't want to present a rosy picture today, but I also want to be very clear that there are some choices we've got to make right now we could make to make sure that this intergenerational divide that you're talking about is slowed and reversed. Um, Big debate over superannuation. We've got some serious policies for what we would want to change there. Um, It's not necessarily the sort of thing you think about in your 20s, but I tell you what, by the time you get to your 50s, if you look back, you go far out. That was pretty unfair Mm. (laughs) that I ended up with so little, even though I, I worked really hard. Yeah, and I, I think, um, Cassandra, as you point out, uh, uh, you know, the data that you've um, pulled together as part of the Poverty and Inequality Partnership report was collected in the 15 years to now. And so it, it doesn't sort of capture this period that we're in now with the pandemic, which has changed so much. But I wonder, I mean, there was one insight from one of your um, researchers around that the most Australians seem to think that they are middle income. And I, it, what, it stuck with me because, of course, not everybody can be middle income. We've got people at either extreme as well. Do we need more empathy or understanding about where we sit ourselves in order to start to address these issues in earnest, do you think? Yeah, yeah. so I think it, this is about the sort of cultural, um, you know, um, what I call safety of the community Um, for far too long because we overall have been a very prosperous country no question about it and this report highlights that that in fact in terms of um, average um, wealth we'd finally got to a million in the averages for people. But, of course, that masks the fact that a lot of that is concentrated at the top end. Um, That's the way averaging works, of course. So, overall, we've been a very wealthy country. And so, underlying that has been this ability to shame people a lot if you weren't one of those people with a lot of money and, you know, not only one property, but your investment property and a couple of cars and an overseas trip. That was the, that's been the dominant picture of who Australians are. And, of course, the reality is 
the vast majority of people do not actually live that life. Um, that, um, you know, the, the reality is many, many people have been infected, millions of people have been affected by unemployment and the, you know, terrible experience of trying to live on it was $40 a day. Absolutely disgraceful. Um, and for young people on youth allowance, it was $31 a day. Um, and, but of course, many people felt really unsafe to talk about that because you got demonised, you got blamed, you, you know, you know all the language. I don't want to use it because I don't even want to put that language out there. But I'm hoping that one of, in this context now of what we have with so many more people, you know, tragically affected by unemployment um, or the, and, and that growing fear that if it hasn't happened to you today, it could be you, that we have really an opportunity to connect across the community with empathy, that this is a very shared experience and it's a time really when we've got big choices about do we act in solidarity with each other? Do we, you know, all come out and say, let's finally increase job seeker the unemployment payment so that it really is adequate for anybody who might need it. Um, otherwise, we go down another path, which is that we turn people on each other and start to blame each other over this next period. And I think that would be very dangerous for us as a community. And I know many of the um, people directly affected now are speaking up. It's been such an important change. Uh, we've been involved, for example, with our state and territory colleagues and many social services and business groups campaigning to get an increased unemployment payment, the Raise the Rate campaign. And so many younger people have contributed to that by speaking up, being, doing their videos, talking publicly about it, not being shamed about it. And I just say more power to them um, because it absolutely could be most of us at some point. Yeah. Um, and we want to have a really you know, strong safety net so that um, it, is, it is with dignity that you can get through that experience for as long as it takes. And it's an interesting point you make because I think you're right. A lot of people suddenly realised or were really confronted with just how difficult it would be to live on the, the job seeker original rate that the former new start rates before it was increased as you know a whole lot of Australians faced unemployment as a result of the pandemic but we do currently yeah. have these additional uh, sort of payments in place the job seeker uh, supplement and, and job keeper as well which was is being wound down and gradually will be uh, removed with with the job seeker supplement removed by the end of the year and and job keeper currently scheduled to end at the end of March I guess along with this we're obviously awaiting the October budget and there's been some comments from Josh Frydenberg that maybe hint at, at what the government might do there's been some talk of tax cuts for example and and cutting red tape where do you think we'll go with this kind of social security policy and uh, the job seeker payment and all these types of issues to try and address the, the wealth and income inequality that you've uh, really tracked through this report when we come out of on the other side, if there is another side, which we all hope for, um, of the pandemic. Yeah. So the, the um, federal government um, acted with, um, I think, you know, in many respects, extraordinary insight when it doubled the rate of job seeker in the face of the, you know, first phase of the COVID pandemic crisis hitting us. Um, and then, of course, with you know, a lot of pressure. Um, it also created JobKeeper. And when you look at the national account figures that came out last week, you know, that where we've sort of reported the 7% drop in GDP, um, everybody's saying, true, it is the worst that we've had in 100 years. What was really important to highlight was that the 
drop in GDP, which flows into jobs, right? That's what is underlying that figure um, in many ways, um, was that um, those um, in- income support payments on the job seeker and job keeper were the engine room of preventing it being even worse. So when you provide income support to people on very low incomes, young people, um, you know, affected by unemployment or studying, um, people are spending it. People are spending that money because, of course, you need to spend on the essentials. You know, finally, so many people um, affected by unemployment pre-COVID, when that additional money came in, they've been out saying, I've just finally um, been able to get my kids' teeth done properly, or I've finally managed to get some new shoes for all the kids. That kind of story it's is, extraordinary is, is, is to think that, reality. that, so that um, it's spending. lifted people out get, of poverty, a lot of people be in this period. Yeah, um, and, but it will be a dangerous mistake for the government now to withdraw those payments. We, are, we have not given up on um, you know, are, are urging the federal government to keep the Social Security payments at an adequate level. I don't think we can afford that cut of $300 per fortnight that's planned to come in at the end of September. All the flow-on consequences, including in Victoria, will be just devastating. Um, and instead, you know, what the government's talking about is bringing forward these personal income tax caps. I'm glad you mentioned it. We, it will be a huge mistake for us to do that. Those tax cuts go to people who've got jobs. Mostly it goes to people on higher incomes. Um, if the government doesn't do anything to fix JobSeeker, but instead brings forward these tax cuts, um, which cost a lot of money, and if all of them come through, if you're on $200,000 per year, you'll get a benefit of $11,000 a year, right? Mm. Um, but it will spend a lot of money. It will absolutely drive up inequality. You, I mean, you know, you don't need to be a mathematician or economist to work that out, do you? Um, and also, it will not help us in terms of keeping the economy going and jobs, because actually it's people on low incomes who are the engine room of the economy at the moment and into the future. And frankly, the OECD and the IMF all would identify that after the GFC. You know, we've learned some lessons, what we shouldn't do. Um, and they were very um, critical of those kinds of approaches, which was to flatten the incomes of people on low incomes, austerity, yeah, and provide a whole lot of money to people on higher incomes because higher income people are currently, they're saving it. They're paying down debt um, and looking out for the next investment opportunity. And Cassandra, we have gone over time, but I just wanted to ask one last thing while we had you. And I mean, we hear a lot from business that we need certainty and that word is something that a lot of us would actually like in our lives at the moment. Um, I mean, do you get much cut through at ACOS calling for certainty for um, in the area that you work and, and I suppose in representing those on the lowest incomes? Yeah, look, I'm, I am, um, of course, we would like more certainty. I think it is a mistake that the federal government has done this sort of staging of job, you know, what, what the future of job seeker. I mean, I, of course, we are hopeful that they will do the right thing. They've indicated that they are, what's the, what's the language, leaning in? Mm, um, something well, we like that. Leaning, <laughs> we don't need leaning in, we need a decision. You know, because um, for people on low incomes, um, if you're affected by unemployment, if you're renting at the moment, you really do need certainty, don't you? You know, you're deciding, do I, do I need to now uh, get get out of this 
property because I can't afford it once Job Seeker goes down, um, all the flow on, you know, mental health aspects of that. So um, I think we're get, certainly getting traction in the wider public debates about it. Um, I cannot find a person who disagrees with us on Job Seeker, frankly. Um, and um, I'll be at the National Press Club next week with um, Chris Richardson, who's a Deloitte um, economist, and Paul Zara from the Retailers Association. Um, we don't agree on everything, but I tell you what we do agree on is the need to provide certainty for people on low incomes and um, get a you know a, an adequate increase into job seeker, and that's what we'll be talking about together. Well, good that we can hear you again very soon. Thanks so much for joining us on Triple R. Thank you for your time, and I really you know just want to um, wish all the very best to. Um, you know, friends and colleagues, and everybody in Victoria as well. And um, this is this is um, really something that we're we're very focused on. You know, where we need to be most, and at the moment we need to be mostly you know thinking out how we support you all there. So I'm in Sydney and thinking to all those in Victoria. Thanks. Thanks so much, Cassandra. Really appreciate it. Thank you, uh, Cassandra Goldie, Chief Executive of ACOS. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.